reading is found uh, this morning in Isaiah 9. So would you uh, take your copy of God's Word and open it to that when you find your place? Uh, you can stand with me. Isaiah 9. One through seven, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light is shown. You have multiplied the nation; you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy and the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle turmoil and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You may be seated as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come this morning, as we have been doing all throughout this service, already acknowledging, as what we've sung, that we are in need of you. And yet even that confession of our own limitedness, our own weakness, is a, is a reminder of your fullness and your power and your ability What great privilege we have this morning as your people bought for us through the blood of Jesus Christ uh, as he went to the cross taking our rejection and taking uh, taking our separation from you so that we may draw near with boldness and with confidence, with joy, knowing that you hear us. How often we must confess we have taken this gift of prayer and this great means of blessing you have given to us, just this outworking of being in fellowship with you for granted. Father, I pray you'd forgive us for that. Help us to be strengthened in our resolve to seek you daily. Father, we come this morning and think about this great light you've given to us in Christ so that we might know you. That we might know ourselves in the world around us so that we might have life which comes through him. And Lord, I pray that if any here this morning is gathered under the sound of my voice that does not have that hope and does not have that assurance that even today you would make that known to them. And not just so they can see their error, but that they may come to Christ to find uh, that in his hands there are 10,000 charms, as the old songwriter has said, 10,000 blessings. What a joy it is to know you and be your child. 
Father, I pray for your word. We know faith comes from hearing and hearing by your word. And Lord, we speak to the church this morning and, and as a church, we listen to your voice to us. And, and Father, we pray, would you strengthen our faith? Convict and correct and do those things in us that needs to be done. Give us comfort and and help us to be like the Greeks who says, show us Jesus. We would want to see him. And so we pray for that this morning, Father, because we believe it is your will and your delight to show us Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen and amen. Children, you may be dismissed for Sunday school this morning. Well, if you have uh, your Bible still handy with you, uh, won't you grab that and open it with me to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter number 9. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are currently going through a series in the Gospel of John, and and we're in chapter number 9, so that's not a big mystery why we're here this morning in chapter 9. It's just kind of how it worked out. This has been a rich and encouraging study, I think, not only for me, I, I hope it has been for you as well. And a reminder of John's intent in writing to us is that in seeing Jesus, we might believe. Uh, And and seeing him again, we might keep on believing and be strengthened and assured in whom we have believed in. And so we want to see the glory of Christ continually through the gospel of John. I'm going to read just part of chapter number 9. We're going to deal with verses 2. 12 through 41, which is a very lengthy section, but I want to just read the end of that and we'll, we'll come back and fill in some of the pieces as we look at this section this morning. So I'm going to pick up verse number 35. You can read along with me. The Bible says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind... You would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. May the Lord bless the reading and application of his word. C.S. Lewis has captured for us in a children's novel this emboldened idea of stubbornness, which rejects everything the senses and plain reasoning is trying to tell them. Um. It is in this display of what we might refer to as this willful kind of blindness uh, that we reject really the facts that are clearly in front of your face, even if everything that we are exercising by way of our senses and our mind uh, are telling us a different story. We're just kind of just blocking it out of our, our, our view. In the last of a book in a series called Chronicles of Narnia, he captures this in one of his characters or a group of his characters uh, referred to as the dwarfs. 
Some of you may have read his stuff and, and have found it quite interesting and entertaining. But at the very end of this, there's a catchy phrase that these uh, characters take on and it, it, because they don't want to be taken advantage of and nobody's going to fool them again, they decided they're going to shut the world out and they say the dwarfs are for the dwarfs, uh, which is a quite uh, humorous statement in our household anyway, uh, for whatever reason. They have closed themselves all to any outside uh, any outside voice, any allegiance to anyone but themselves. Later in the book, at the end of it, you see this scene where they're sitting in a pasture that is sunny filled, where uh, a beautiful place where you'd want to take a picnic. And, and they've been given this uh, great feast, this lunch and all kinds of food and, and drink and those things like that. And as they're sitting there, they're complaining about being in a dark stable and eating straw and drinking from a trough. That belonged to a donkey. As you're reading that, you clearly see that the problem isn't where they're at and what they have. The problem is them. They're blind to the goodness that is, that is given to them. They're, they're in the dark. Well, it is something like that is what we see in our text this morning. Um, that as we read through this, we see that there is a blindness which these Pharisees are engulfed in, which really calls good evil and evil good. In fact, we kind of wonder if there's actually people like this when you read the story of uh, C.S. Lewis, and one 17th century philosopher said, here lies the problem. He says, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Isn't that a striking observation for a mathematician, uh, one who deals with numbers and facts? Now, I think there's many reasons for this. One, I think, ultimately, may be pride. We just don't want to be thought to be wrong or be told that we're wrong once we've made some kind of stand, some kind of statement. We could say it's ignorance or stubbornness or rebellion. All of those, I think, go together Another writer says the problem is fear. It's the fear of where the facts are leading you. It's a fear of the consequences. If this is true, then this right here must be true as well. And we don't want to go where we don't want to go. In fact, that may be one of the greatest obstacles uh, in the secular mind to the valid claims of the Bible and Christianity and the reality of who Jesus is, the gospel message. Is fear, if this is true, then I don't like the implications of where this is leading. Now, we expect that from the world. I think you know that as well as I do. You don't send your kids off to a public uh, college or a, uh, a secular college or Harvard or Yale or any of those places like that. And expect them to come back with a strengthened uh, faith in Christ or in the Bible, do you? You'd be foolish if you think that they come home and say, well, I've just found a striking argument for the existence of God and the trustworthiness of his Bible in one of my lectures at Yale or Harvard. In fact, uh, what you know, if they do come out of those institutions that way, it's in spite of what is being taught. Everything is against God. Unbelief is, is the motto of the day, unbelief about God. In fact, religion in that point is just something that they use as far as a fancy or political science to study people and 
their habits. Well, that's not the case in our text this morning. The troubling part is that unbelief is present within the church. We expect it from the world. We expect it from that that area of, of society. But what do you do when people who have been given promises by God, people who have have the Bible, people who have been brought up to, to think about God and to study God, what do you do when the truth and reality about Jesus is set in front of them and they clearly respond with unbelief? Well, the fact is, it reminds us that unbelief is the plague. It is a disease that troubles all of us inside and outside of our familiarity of religion. Now, last week we considered a miracle that Jesus did in chapter number 9. Those of you who aren't with us, just a quick run through of that. A man who was born blind, verse number 1, and Jesus came by and healed him by spitting on the ground, making a little mud, and placing it on the man's eyes and sent him to go wash in a pool of Siloam. And in that process, the, the man received his sight. He clearly sees and he comes back rejoicing and you see the response of that in verses 8 on through verse number 11. The people are asking, how did this happen? And, and he's ecstatic. They're kind of all messed up on this. And you would think that verse number 12 and on through would just lead us into the greatest revival the world has ever seen. Wouldn't you? A man is born blind. Now we're talking literally, if you take the Bible literally, and I take it literally. If you don't, then, then you probably already turned me off for the rest of this sermon. A man literally born blind who now has the capacity to see, and, and the response is, quite remarkable and it's reminding us that light has come into the world as we read in verse number 39 and this light has come to illuminate the eyes of the blind now by blind he doesn't mean physically blind though it's a true miracle that happened christ has come into the world to give spiritual sight to those who are in darkness and by very nature of that the the effect of that light coming into the world it also has a blinding effect for those who claim to have spiritual insight. And our narrative this morning, and we'll look at it this way, is it gives us really a, a glimpse at both unbelief and faith. We see the unbelief in uh, the Pharisees. We'll begin there, and then we'll see faith in this man who had been healed. Notice with me uh, verse number 13, and we'll read on down to verse number twenty. Uh, 2 or 23 the unbelief of the pharisees now they brought they brought to the pharisees the man who had been formerly blind it was on the sabbath day when jesus made the mud and opened his eyes so the pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight and he said to them he put mud on my eyes and i washed and i see and some of the pharisees said this man is not from god for he does not keep the sabbath but others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things, such signs? And there was a division among them. So they again said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, 
But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. Well, that's the biggest kind of getting out of, wiggling out of trouble there, isn't it? He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now, the beginning of this seems rather normal as they come to this, this man who is blind or bring the man who is born blind. His neighbors bring him to the Pharisees. Maybe it's the local synagogue that, that they're going to. And these, these are the leaders over this particular synagogue. We don't know, but it's, it's more of a public hearing. The man is, is, for the most part, on trial. And you see their unbelief. There's an intimidation in this. Now, I picture in my mind, you can think about it however you want to, you're free to do that, of him kind, them kind of sitting over this guy, and they're, he's kind of down there trying to give an answer for what's going on. And they ask him a pretty simple question, how did you come to see? Well, the man tells them, doesn't he? He says, well, this is how it all happened. He told me to go, and, and I went and, and washed, and, and now I see. Verse number 12. But unbelief is not settled, or, or, or it, the unbelief that they demonstrate here is not just simply out of curiosity of what happened, but what you see is these people are asking this question so that they can find a loophole in his testimony. That's what they're doing, isn't it? You may have experienced that when you share the gospel with someone or share something out of the Bible. They're hanging on every word, waiting for that one wrong word to come up so they can say, ha-ha! There, there it is. That's why it's not true. So naturally, the loophole was found here in the Sabbath law. Notice verse number 14. John highlights this for a second time. Earlier it happened and they vowed to put Jesus to death because he broke the Sabbath. Now notice what it says. It was on the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. And he tells them he made mud. And so some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, automatically. This man's not from God because of the Sabbath. He made mud. You're not supposed to knead dough and, and make dough on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to practice medicine on the Sabbath. The man need mud, made mud, and he practiced medicine on the Sabbath. Even if it was a divine miracle, so naturally, since God gave us the Sabbath, and the Sabbath has come from God, this man cannot come from God because he violated the Sabbath. It's hard to know where their thinking is on this, but if you do some research, you'll find some rabbis teach, and has been taught, that if the nation of Israel perfectly kept the Sabbath, two Sabbaths in a row, I was about to say two Sundays in a row, but that would be sacrilegious, wouldn't it? Two Saturdays in a row. If they perfectly kept two Sabbaths in a row, then automatically the Messiah would come and bring deliverance. Isn't that remarkable? Because it was view that keeping the Sabbath was a detachment from worldly pleasures and, and, and greed and, and all of those things like that. And it was putting your faith truly in God and it was a declaration of one's righteousness and therefore uh, people had to be righteous before the Messiah would come. And, and so two Sabbaths, because one wasn't good enough. You had to practice righteousness for a week, that would be two Sabbaths, and therefore the Messiah would automatically come and bring deliverance and usher in the kingdom. Uh, there's another source who has said, and I don't know if he, he gave up on hope for two Saturdays, but another one said, well, if Israel practices the Sabbath once rightly, 
then the Messiah will come and usher in the kingdom of God. Now, you're looking at me like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it is quite funny that the Messiah is standing in their midst and he just opened a guy's eyes of a man born blind and they keep going back to, no, we have to keep this in order to be right with God and bring in the Messiah. Um, their idea was, and the rejection of God was, the Messiah must be like us and value what we value. It wasn't that Jesus disregarded the Sabbath. He, he obeyed all of God's laws perfectly. He disregarded their idolatry of the Sabbath and their legalism, which they put on other people. He disregarded what they valued because he valued what was true and right and good in the sight of God. And some people will not believe in God. They don't believe in, in Jesus. They don't follow Christ and they don't receive the gospel because they, they see it as a disregard to their own values. They see the Bible teaching us a Savior which is wholly unlike them and we cannot fathom the thought that we are the problem or something's wrong with us instead of there's something wrong with him. Well, they go further than just the fact that they find a loophole. There's other people who looked at the same evidence and be like, he did open the eyes of somebody who was blind. How can be a sinner? Verse number 16. So the second thing you notice about their unbelief is found in verse number 18. They explain away the facts. Now notice verse number 18. Women, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. So that would clear up the whole issue. There's nothing to see here, folks. Just keep moving because this guy's been lying to us all this time. He's been able to see the whole time. He's a, he's a con artist. He's never been blind. He's, he's always been able to see. He never was in this situation. There's a logical explanation to all of this that we see, and that is just deny the whole thing. In fact, it's rather comical, and as one minister has said is one of the most uh, unforgivable acts that they could do they drag his parents into this mess i said we'll prove that this guy was never blind we'll prove that jesus is not who he is by the very fact we'll bring his parents in they said well is he your son who you say was born blind then how does he see of course we know his parents were struck by fear and their intimidation as they you could imagine the conversation couldn't you with Joseph and Margaret going off to the synagogue as they were being called in. I don't know if that was their names. I'm just trying to pick a few for you. <laughs> Margaret saying to Joseph, what are we going to do? I mean, we'll be ostracized. We'll be, we'll be kicked out of the synagogue. What, what am I going to do about I got this study I go to. We got this kind of fellowship, the marketplace. And Joseph's like, well, all of my connections and all of that stuff, what are we going to do? I tell you what we'll do. We'll just say, we don't know a thing. Let him answer for himself. He's a grown man. He's always getting us in trouble. And let's just let it rest on him. Some of you are like, hey, you may have lived through that with your children. I don't know. But notice the clear reasoning of these Pharisees. Not only are they trying to find a way out of confessing this reality of what Jesus did by calling him a sinner and saying he's not from God because he violated the law of God. Now they begin explaining away, explaining away the very things that they have heard 
Now, thirdly, noticed about their unbelief and the unbelief we see in the world is they take the superior or the moral high ground. You ever notice the great debates in our day are not in negative terms? I know we've talked about, Greg, in his prayer, mentioned the issue of abortion. It's a very heated subject, isn't it? You may even differ here. Some of you may differ on the view of that. But you notice it's never, it's never couched in taking a child's life. How do they word it? Isn't it care? Isn't it health care? Isn't it considered when you speak about all the things that's going on with children today and the, the debates that's going on, isn't it referred to as affirmation? We, we speak about love and those things like that. And all I'm simply saying is there is that language, that ability to kind of set ourselves over what God says as if the world or we as people can be more loving, more kind, more compassionate, more, more whatever it may be than God or what the word of God teaches. And that's our, our motto in our culture. And so we bring out all these obscure passages in the Bible and speak about cruelty and all this other stuff and disregarding the whole biblical narrative. And what we're saying at that point is that we are, we're better than God. He can't be my Savior because I'm better than him. And we expect that from the world, but what do you do when the religious crowd are doing the same thing? Because that's exactly what legalism is, isn't it? It's a declaration, I don't need salvation because I'm doing pretty good. In fact, if you really look at it and from the Pharisees' point of view, this man eats with publicans and sinners, and if he was the Messiah, he would be totally other. In fact, if he was truly from God, he would look a lot like us. And you say, well, that's kind of good conjecture. Where do you get all that stuff? Well, I'm glad you asked. Notice with me. Verse number 24. So for a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. And by the way, he will. Rest assured, he'll give glory to God. But not the way they want. We know this man is a sinner. Isn't that remarkable? We don't know where he comes from. I'll say later on. But one thing we do know, this man's a sinner. He answered, verse 25, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that though I was blind and now see, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now, again, they're, they're, they're avoiding the reality of who Jesus is and going but to the nitty-gritty of the situation. And he answered them, I already told you. Already you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of whom? <laughs> there it is, isn't it? We know Moses, God has spoken to Moses, but as this man, we do not know where he comes from. It's, you know, it's funny, earlier on, the Pharisees and the Jews says, well, when the Messiah comes, we won't know where he comes from. And here they clearly said, we don't know where this man comes from, but we know God spoke to Moses, and so we're his disciples. And Jesus said, Earlier on, speaking of their condemnation and impending judgment, he says, In the day of judgment, it will be Moses who is raised up to condemn you. And they are saying that it is not from God 
and he is a sinner, that anyone who confesses him will be put out of the synagogue. We don't know where he's come from, and so we're sticking with Moses. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the same thing I'm thinking. Here's a group of guys, however many there were at this point, are clearly confused. But if God would show them something, in some way, if God would prove to them in in some object lesson to where their senses can be stimulated, to where they can put pieces together logically and, and deduce who this Jesus is, that he's not a normal person. If there was just a miracle that could happen or a a demonstration of the power of God and the favor of God with this man named Jesus, then surely they would have said, we know he's from God. Oh, wait. Verse number one says he saw a man that was blind from birth. There was. Staring them in the face with a capacity to see what their face looks like was a, was a reminder that all of this should have brought them to confess him Lord to the glory of God the Father. Overwhelming evidence and yet they did not believe. In fact, what we find is the progression of their descent against Jesus is progressively worse as they continue on with this debate and this, this sort of interrogation with this man. And let me just say this. You cannot argue people into the kingdom of God and into heaven. I believe Pascal was right when he said, it is not by proof, it's by the things that we delight in or the things that we desire and not to say that we should not have an answer for the hope that's within us and give reasonable responses but they prove over and over that they are blind that they are blind and they cannot see and everything screaming at them who Jesus is and yet they still refuse to come to him you know there's people in our culture maybe even people in your family who And maybe even you here this morning that if you could have been there for yourself, if you could have seen these things for yourself, then then you would believe. As of right now, you can't believe because you don't see them and you can't put two and two together. How a man walks on water, how he feeds 5,000. You can't just put all the pieces together and believe because you didn't see it. So in that sense, faith is sight. But if you had have been there, and what my Bible says, if you would have been there, you would have put the man to death again which is the case of Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, clearly alive after being dead four days. And what did they do? What did the same group do? They said, not only do we got to kill Jesus, we got to kill Lazarus too. There is a blindness as we see. And there's a great deal of people in the world today who keep claiming for this great proof this glorious demonstration of something that you may find in this text, and they're blinded to the thousand ways God communicates his grace to them day after day. And they stay blind because they stay rejecting Christ. And notice with me the declaration or the example of faith found in this man that was blind. We see unbelief. 
Now let us look at faith, and we see the certainty and the progress of his faith. Now I want us to go back again to verse number 25. It said, verse 24, give glory to God. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I love that statement, don't you? Let me just, on the outset of this, just say that faith, biblical saving faith, has an object. And I only say that because we live in a world uh, where we speak about the term faith and belief and all those things like that. Many of you are raised in church or in, in a religious home where faith was, was one of those words you used a lot. Family of faith, people of faith, you get it, and so on. But when we look through the biblical language, faith has an object. We're not left to be confused of not do you believe, but do you believe in God? But not simply do you believe in God, the Pharisees would have checked that box, but do you believe in Jesus Christ, the one God has sent? And that's the issue. God is not on trial here. Jesus is. And I think that's a good reminder. That is who we need to present in front of our kids, especially in a message where they're supposed to believe in themselves and believe in science and believe in everything else, that the heart of Christianity, the main thrust of our Bible, is to point us to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? And this, of course, is the work of the Holy Spirit. For this man was blind, both physically and spiritually. And through the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, illuminating the eyes, not only his physical eyes, the healing that took place, but his, his spiritual eyes so that he might see Christ <clears throat> and might respond to the gospel of Christ. Uh, simply put another way, uh, the Holy Spirit does not just convict us and draw us to ourselves or to some fanciful idea, but he comes and draws us to Christ himself the source and substance of the Christian faith. We can take comfort in the fact that this man's story is our story. And I want to give you a, a few characteristics of his faith, and I think it would be helpful. One, it was simple and yet informed. We talked about this last week, simple but informed. We see that here in verse number 26 or 25 and 26. And he answered, speaking the man that was born blind, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing, I do know that though I was blind, now I see. He doesn't get into a big debate. He doesn't get into those things. He, there's many things that he does not know and will need to know. But the, the issue of his faith is simple. It, it brings us back to the person and work of Christ. How did you begin to see? How did you get to where you're at? Well, I met a man named Jesus. That's simple, isn't it? And that while I was in this state, now I am no longer. But in a sense, it, it is a reminder to us that it is not blind faith in the sense of it must be informed. It has to be something that we know. We have to know who he is and what he's come to do. But the second thing I want us to understand about this man's faith is that it's historical. He's not in speculating about mysteries of how many angels can dance on the head pen of a needle. That's what they do in theology class, I'm told. 
But he's not talking about mysteries. His faith is rooted in the actual fact that he had an encounter with Christ, a physical real encounter with Christ, and his life is no longer the same. And if you're saved this morning, there is a historical aspect of your faith that you have had an encounter with Christ uh, through the preaching of the gospel, the giving of the gospel, the, its work in your life, and you were no longer the same. A new creation in Christ Jesus is a historical aspect of that, but not only in your experience, but in the, in the actual foundation of our faith. The enlightenment brought and cut the legs out from the evangelistic message of the gospel by telling us it doesn't really matter if the Bible is historical or trustworthy. Of course, there's a great measure of Christianity who is well, referring to call themselves Christianity who has kind of went that way. It doesn't matter if Jesus actually healed a guy that was blind. We know that stuff doesn't happen. All that matters is that, that, that you believe, that you see, and, and what a confusing mess that is. The Bible isn't trustworthy, it isn't real, it isn't meant to be taken literal. We just pick and choose what we believe. And if that is your faith, the foundation of your faith, then you don't have a faith in the historical Jesus or, or the, the assurance that that gives us. The message of the gospel is the message about a man who was born, who lived 33 and a half years without sin, doing some miraculous things, being attested by the miracles and the message that he preached and died on the cross. And all of that's significant because he lived and he died and the eyewitnesses tell us that he rose again. Our faith has a foundation. It's rooted in, in history. It's rooted in what actually took place, the implications of what God calls us to believe and to, to live and spend our lives because of what he's done for us is because he actually did what it says he did. He came, he lived, and he died, and he rose again. And all this, not for his sake, but for our own. So our faith is simple, but it's historical. The third thing I want us to notice in verse number 27 as this conversation goes on, train wreck of an interview, whatever you want to call it, is his faith is bold. Verse 26 says, They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already. You would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Now, this guy's lived on the street sometime. You can tell, can't you? He's been around the block a few times. I think that has uh, made him quick-witted and the Spirit of God sanctifying that uh, a little bit. He says, do you want to become his disciples? Why well, you keep asking me this? You're trying to follow him? You want a brochure? Go out on applications if he needs a follower. Why are you worried about this since you don't receive what I've already told you? A little tongue-in-cheek there, isn't it? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples. We're we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. I think they probably said it like that. The man answered, well, this is really amazing. You don't know where, he's, where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. And we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened his eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. I'm just going to tell you that his parents, facing this same interrogation, they caved under pressure, didn't they? 
their little conversation, Margaret and Joseph as they go along and talking about how they're going to work this out and kind of weasel their way out of this to say anything that might incriminate themselves because they feared being kicked out of good standing with the Pharisees and the local synagogue. And yet here's a man who stands up under that same threat and really takes them to task. (laughs) Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to follow him? Didn't think so. It's remarkable, you, you learned men. He could have said some other things too. Now you don't know where he comes from. You're still holding out. And here I am. I can see God doesn't listen to sinners. God listened to him. No one's ever been cured of blindness. How can this be? How can he not be from God? Now, some suggest this story is put in here because the Jews that would have been facing this kind of ostracism uh, when um, John wrote the gospel were as claiming to be Christian, they would have been kicked out of synagogues and, and, and out of the fellowship of the, the Jewish community there, and, and which would have been completely upsetting. It does remind you that coming to Christ and claiming to be a Christian does cost something, doesn't it? Jesus reminds his would-be followers at one point to count the cost because there is a public declaration, there is a public confession that we all must make. And twofold, one, we make it, as already been said this morning, through prayers and exhortations throughout this service, of that confession is made by the very lies we live. Paul spoke of the church, one of the churches as being a a gospel written out in them. Their lives, their very lives, was a testimony to the gospel, a living word and proof of God's saving grace. But here there's another confession that's made when push comes to shove. Is it Christ that we stand with or would we stand and, and do we cave under the fear and pressure of the intimidation of the unbelievers? Put it another way, when faced with the scrutiny and the backlash of those who dissent and disregard the gospel and disregard our Savior, will we stand with him? And that's why we need to be reminded faith is historical. Because we will never be bold about our faith if we don't know who he, who he is and what he did. If our faith is not informed about, about the, the reality and the blessing of what it means to be in Christ, we will fall every time, won't we? Because we don't have that assurance, that confidence we need that Christ gives to us through his word and the Spirit's work in our life. But that being said, here is a man who's experienced the grace of God in his life and there's no shaking him. There's no denying The world, let them say what they want to say. He was blind, but now he sees. And it's all because he met a man named Jesus. Faith is simple. Faith is historical. Faith is bold. And I would say this, faith is growing or developing. The man confesses first he is a prophet. Verse number 33, he confesses he is from God. Verse 36 through 38, he is the Messiah. Notice with me, Jesus heard that they cast him out and having found him said, do you believe in the son of man? 
And by the way, doesn't it remind you of Psalms 1, I will not walk with the sinners or stand in their counsel or sit with the scorners or scoffers? Well, Jesus comes to him as he has been cast out from their presence. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and worshiped him. Isn't that the progress of our faith? To see Jesus more and more clearly. How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you're part of the family of God? How do you know that you have the hope of eternal life? That you you are marked like this blind man here who is marked? Well, isn't it here in that kind of in that kind of reality? What do you do with Jesus? In your life, what have you done with him? Who is Christ to you? The object of your worship, the very hope in which you're resting in. Uh, the Spirit of God leads us as in conversion and in our Christian progress to see him more and more and in seeing him more and more, leading us to worship him more and more, offering up praise and thanksgiving. Well, there is faith and unbelief. Now let me just close quickly as time is expiring. Verse 39 through 41, the mission of Christ in the world. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. <laughs> Verse 40 says, some of the Pharisees heard him say these things. And <clears throat> what about us? Are we blind? Well, you've been the object, the negative object of this whole narrative. And Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you see, say we see, your guilt remains. Carson, in his commentary on this, makes a statement, and I'll just read it to you, quoting, um, I think he's quoting another theologian. This is a paradox of the revelation that in order to be in grace, it must also give offense, and so can turn to judgment. In order to be grace, it must uncover sin, and he who resists this binds himself to his sin as though revelation of sin for the first time becomes definitive. What does he mean by that? Well, Jesus came into the world to heal and to give sight to those who are spiritually blind. But just by nature as one who rejects the light in this world, the natural light, he is only left with darkness. So those who reject Jesus and his message... Even though they claim to know God, they claim to see, are left blind, confused, and without cure. That's what Jesus is saying. You say you have confidence in who God is. You say you're without need. You say you don't need any help, that you will not repent. You will not be taught. You will not believe that you're deficient in and of yourself. And the only thing left for you is your own sinful condition and the guilt that remains verse number 41 but now that you say we see your guilt remains it's just a reminder to us church there is only one help that god has extended to us there's only one cure one one antidote for the guilt of our sins and that's extended to us in jesus christ you may have come in here with the weight of the world and all of the the baggage of your sinful past and the mistakes you made 
and God extends to us through the preaching of the gospel, the message of the gospel. Here is, here is what you do with guilt. This is where it's met. This is where it will be removed. That is in Jesus Christ himself. But if you reject that, all you're left with is your guilt for eternity. There remains no further help. And if that is you this morning, I would just implore you, encourage you to turn to Christ, who is the sacrifice for our sin, who is our justification, who died on the cross to remove that kind of weight that we could not carry. And dear Christians, this morning, what a thanksgiving expression this blind man says. The simplicity of it we concluded with last week, and I will again in verse number 26, or verse 25, we know he's not a sinner. Let me add a correction there. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. The world may come and ask us and pray that God would open the doors that they might ask us, how did this thing happen? Well, let me tell you, I met a man named Jesus. That's your confession. That's your testimony this morning pray with me father we thank you for this day you've given to us thank you for your word and this great great narrative then of our lord's life which brings us such rich hope contemplation i pray that you would help us uh, to think on these things in jesus name amen